chapter 6. As we again look at the call of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6, on page 680, it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of His robe filled the temple. Above Him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Let's pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, we know that no, no one has ever truly seen You as You are and lived. No one can see You. And yet, Lord, You reveal Yourself to us. And even in these, these visions, these little glimpses You give of us, we are overwhelmed. You are such a holy and awesome God. And yet, Lord, we, despite knowing that, we would ask that this morning You might reveal Your glory to us again. I pray, Lord, that through the power of the Holy Spirit in this, this hour right now, You might show us who You are and that in relationship to You, You might show us who we are. And then, Lord, You might show us, finally, how we might be saved. So, Lord, God, be with us now. And we thank You for this passage in Isaiah, this exalted vision of the great God that You are. Help us to truly understand it. Help it not just to be words on a piece of paper. But, Lord, through Your living Word, I pray, speak to our hearts. God, I pray for uh, anyone here today, uh, people here I don't know, people with all kinds of issues in their lives, struggles. And Lord, I, I, even though I don't know everyone individually and I don't know the struggles we're all going through individually, I do know that if we were to see You, if we were to catch a greater glimpse of Your glory, if we were to understand the great God that You are, that Lord, that is the ultimate remedy to whatever it is that we're facing in our lives. And so Lord, I pray, give the gift of faith to us right now. Give us the faith in You, the great God, the holy God. And change our lives, we pray. Lord, we don't want anything less than that. The one thing that we dread is ritualistic, empty religion where we just come into a church service and sing some songs and hear a message and leave. God, we don't want that. We want to meet with the true and living God. We desire to see You. Whatever that entails, we desire it. And so, Lord, show Yourself to us now. We ask this and nothing else in the name of Christ. Amen. Have you ever uh, been in a situation where you met somebody uh, famous or uh, important? I, I was, uh, heard a story from a guy in our church uh, who had an encounter like that. Uh, I don't want to embarrass anybody or give out any names, so I'll just call him John Sargent, Ju uh, Senior. Um, and John Sargent, uh, he has a little vacation place up in Maine in Kennebunk. And uh, he, he goes up there on vacations. And he was up there, I guess, this last year with his wife during a church service. And it's a little, just a little main church sitting there, looking around, and then, you know, notice some guys standing up around the sanctuary, and then 
He realized they were Secret Service agents because there in the church was uh, George H., not the current president, but the former president, his wife Barbara, their son Jeb, and his wife, you know, all in just this little church service. And it was like, cool. So they, they had, you know, regular church service. Things went on fine long normally. End of the service, of course, the, the president is ushered out first for security reasons and the Secret Service get him into a little ante room. And then the minister says, after the service, if you'd like to meet the president, you know, you're welcome to do so. And so, you know, I probably would have done the same thing. Uh, John said, well, yeah, I want to meet the president. That's great. So, so, you know, he comes in this ante room and there's a little line and finally he stands there in front of the president, goes to shake his hand and he's like, you know, and he didn't know what to say. And I mean, what, what do you say? I, I really would like to have been there, not, not so much to see the president, but to see John without words. It would have been a truly amazing event. And, and there's John standing there going, uh, uh, you know, the president's like, nice to meet you. And, and then that was kind of the end of the experience. I don't know if you've ever had one of these sudden, random, unexpected encounters. Maybe you're in an elevator or standing at a street corner or something, and, and there's a sports hero or a celebrity or a political figure like that. And, and the moment's upon you, you haven't planned for it. And what do you say? Typically, you'd probably stand there, same way with a little drool, like, uh, you know, <laughs> nice to meet you. Let me throw another one at you. What would it be like if you were sitting in church one Sunday and you suddenly saw God? If God appeared. I mean, we know God is here. We know God is everywhere. God is everywhere we go. He's the the Lord of all the universe. But what if you saw Him? In other words, what if, if the God who is with us right now, who is invisible, decided to show something in some visible, sensory way to see what He was really like and we were sitting there in church, and then, you know, maybe right behind me, it'd be like, whoa, you know, light. Maybe you're the only guy in the, the, the whole room who sees it. And, you know, what, what would that be like? What would you say to God? Maybe you have a bunch of questions in your mind you've always wanted to ask. You know, God, what really did happen to the dinosaurs? And i also like to know, you know, how does free will and predestination fit together? You need to explain this. You know, maybe you have all these theological questions. Or maybe you've been through a difficult time in your life, and frankly, you have a couple bones to pick with God. And you say, look, God, you need to explain why X is happening in my life. You need to explain that to me. Or maybe we would just sit there like John, you know, a little drool going, uh, and standing there in front of God, unable to say anything. Or maybe we wouldn't even have the strength in our bones to stand at all. Maybe we would be on the ground before him. Well, this is what happened to Isaiah. And just trying to put this in a framework, Isaiah is just a regular guy back in the... 8th century B.C., perhaps worshiping in the temple, we're not sure, and all of a sudden, God reveals himself to Isaiah, and Isaiah sees God. And that's what we're looking at here in Isaiah 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, remember we studied that last week, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings, with two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, With two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. Isaiah has this amazing, uh, powerful, almost debilitating vision of the living God. And the overwhelming uh, thing that strikes Isaiah and that strikes us in this passage is the holiness of God. Above all else and everything else we see about God in this text, we see His utter holiness. He's not just holy, and He's not just holy, holy. He's 
holy, holy, holy. This is an interesting passage because this is the only place in the Bible where some attribute of God is uh, repeated three times. Only place. Uh, holy, holy, holy. Three times we hear that. Uh, theologians and scholars call this the trishagion. Trice means three, and hagios is a Greek word for holy. So this is the trice, this is the three holies. I don't know why scholars have to name these things. I mean, I guess that's how you write dissertations. You have to name new things. But anyway, this is the trishagion. The holy, holy, holy. And essentially what it means is that repeating holy three times in Hebrew ascribes to God the highest possible imaginable holiness. That's basically a way of saying the ultimate holiness. It's like when my kids say, you know, no, this is the best movie. And the other one says, no, this is the, the best movie times a thousand. And the other one says, no, no, this is the best movie times a Google, times a Google, times a million, times a billion. You know, it's, it's, it's just a way of trying to pile up adjectives to say that this is the greatest possible conceivable holiness ever. That in fact, uh, relatively speaking, only God is holy and nothing else is compared to His great holiness. He is holy, holy, holy. And Isaiah is overwhelmed by this holy, holy, holy God that he is utterly, completely, totally, incomparably holy. Now this, I think, raises a question, something that we should think about, which is, what does it mean to say that God is holy? And obviously that's the dominant theme here. But, you know, holiness isn't a word we use a lot in our culture. I mean, we know what the word, we say it, but uh, what, what does it really mean? And we talk about Holy Week, Holy Matrimony, uh, sometimes we use the word pejoratively. We say that someone is holier than thou or a holy roller. But what does it really mean to say that God is holy? Because if this is one of his central attributes, if it's repeated three times, we should really understand this concept. And when we look at God's holiness in the Bible, we find that there are uh, two closely related dimensions of his holiness. There's two aspects. And what's interesting is both of those aspects of God's holiness are right here in this passage, as we'll see. Uh, the, the coin of God's holiness has two sides to it. So the first thing that holiness means is that God is utterly unique. That's what it means, first of all, that God is holy, that He's unique, that He is um, other, that He is distinct and separate, that there is some kind of uh, chasm between God and everything else. He, he alone is God. It's another way of saying, like we just sang in that, that song, the famous one, you know, you alone are God. You alone are God. It's just a way of proclaiming that God alone is holy. That God alone is the true King. It's as if everything in the universe falls into one of two categories. There's God, and then there's everything else. You can divide all of reality into two boxes. God, everything else. Everything in the rest of creation is separate and distinct from who God is. He's the king. Everything else is the subjects. He is uh, the creator. Everything else, creation. He is the potter. Everything else, clay. That's what it means to say that God is holy, that he's totally separate and distinct and unique. Look back at our text. Look at the, the uniqueness of God in our text. Um, chapter 6, verse 1, it says, In the year the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne. As the first hint that He alone is God. He's seated on a throne. No one else is. There's only room for one guy on this throne. God. 
This is not a, a, a Senate and God is one guy in the Senate. This is not a House of Representatives and God is one guy in the House of Representatives. He's a king on a throne and there's room for one, and that's him. He's the king on the throne. Everyone else is the subjects. Or notice about this throne that it's high and exalted. Again, there's this sense of separation between this holy God who's high and exalted and everything else that is below him. Or notice this, this last phrase. It's very interesting. It says, The train of his robe filled the temple. That's probably better translated the hem of his robe because as far as we know that robes in those days didn't have trains but they did have a hem. So it's kind of a funny thing. When Isaiah comes to actually describe God, I mean, that's what I'm curious of. Oh, you saw, you saw God, Isaiah? What did he look like? What did God look like? And Isaiah's like, well, um, he had a big hem on his robe. Yeah. That's about all I can say. It's as if the crushing uh, glory of God is so great and so majestic, Isaiah couldn't even lift up his head. And all he could do was kind of peek out of the corner of his eye and see the robe. But, but he couldn't lift his eyes to see this great God. He could just see his, his robe. Isn't that fascinating? That, that we have a vision of God, and yet we hardly see anything of God at all because He's so holy. And again, I think that that just speaks of His otherness, His, his uniqueness, His majesty that Isaiah can't even look at him. So instead, what Isaiah does is he describes the effects of God's holiness on the things around God. Look at verse 2. You'll see what I mean. He says, Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. Now what are the seraphs? answer is, I really have no idea. This is the only place in the Bible they appear. Kind of interesting. Just like this is the only three holies, this is the only place in the Bible we have the seraphs. Actually, we do find the seraphs in Revelation, but I think in Revelation it's an allusion back to Isaiah 6. If you look at Revelation, it's very, the language is very similar. I think it's alluding back. So, practically speaking, this is the only place we find the seraphs. So what do we know about the seraphs? Well, they got six wings. I don't know that. Six sets of wings. Uh, they appear to be some kind of angelic servants. You know, like a, a king's on his throne. You see in the movies and stuff, pictures. Here's the king. And then around the king will be a bunch of people sort of standing around just waiting for the king to give an order. For the king to say, you do this, you do that. I think that's like the, the image here. Is the seraphs are the royal courtiers and they are just standing there waiting for the king to give an order and they'll go do it. He's the king and they're his, his chiefs of state, his uh, head secretaries or something. And they're waiting upon the king. Uh, something else we know about the seraphs is that they must have been beautiful because their name is seraph. Uh, seraph is really just, it's just the Hebrew word, seraph, which is a verb to mean to burn. So this is literally the burning ones or maybe uh, the burning dudes or the, the, the on fire guys or something like that. You know, it's like Isaiah sees these guys. He doesn't know what they are. He goes, and then there's God and there's these burning guys. And they're just, I can't even tell you what it was. They're like, they're on fire. You know, and so who knows what they are? Who knows what exists in heaven that we've never seen? Some kind of glorious burning beings. But I think the important thing to note, and this is what's the key, is the response of these glorious beings to God's holiness. They cover their faces. They cover their feet. It's, they're shielding themselves. Even these great creatures of unmistakable, I mean, uh, unspeakable glory and power, these beings who, I bet if a, if a baby seraph were to show up right here, we'd all, we might all fall on our faces and mistakenly worship it. I mean, that's how glorious these beings are. And here they are in the presence of holy God. They're covering their faces. They're covering their feet. 
That's how holy he is. Not even the seraphs can look at him. No wonder Isaiah couldn't even look at more than just the hem of God's robe. That's how glorious and holy and other he is. He alone is unique. He alone is God. He is separate in glory. And he can't even be viewed by the holiest, most powerful seraphim. This is an amazing God. And so instead, what do the seraphim do? They worship him. Verse 3. They were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. I think that's, that's good because that's, uh, wow, it really helps us with an application here. Maybe if we could just pause here. What does all this mean to say that God is wholly other, that He's unique? I mean, what does that mean for our lives, practically speaking? And I think it means a lot of things. But one of the chief things that stands out is that it means that you and I were created to worship and serve this God. That the meaning of human life is essentially the meaning of seraphim life. You want to know what the meaning of human life is? You don't need a PhD in philosophy. You don't need to go to college and try to figure out the meaning of human life. That's rather simple. The meaning of human life is to worship and serve this God. The meaning of human life is the same as the meaning of seraphim life. It's to say, God, I am your servant. I'm here to worship you and serve you. The seraphim do it in heaven. We do it on earth. That is why you're here. It doesn't matter what you do for a living. It doesn't matter how old you are, how much money you have, whether you're single, married, male, female, young or old. All that's irrelevant. Regardless of what your station in life is and what you do and who you are, your purpose is the same as mine. To worship and serve this holy God. To please Him only. That's the meaning of human life. It's like in the Westminster Catechism. I don't know, some of you know the Westminster Catechism? Catechism is like a little Q&A. It's a question and then an answer and it's a way of teaching theology. We started to uh, do the catechism with our kids around the dinner table at night. Like uh, after, near the end of the meal, I'll, I'll take out the, I call it the question book. I'm like, here comes the question book. They're like, yeah, the question book. And then uh, I'll, I'll get the question book out and I'll ask them some, some theological question. I usually have to like rephrase it so that they'll understand what the question is. And then we just we talk theology a little bit. It's just an easy way to do theology with your kids, and it's great for me too. I'm just you know brushing up on it. But anyway, if you know the Westminster Catechism, if you remember the, fir- the very first question in the Catechism is what is the chief end of man? In other words, what is the the central purpose of human existence? Why are we here? And does anyone know the answer to that first question? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's why you're here. That's why I'm here. That's our chief purpose. You wonder, what am I doing here on planet Earth? My job sucks. My, you know, my family's going through difficult times. have all these hard things going on in my life. Why am I here, God? And it's like, you're here for Him. No matter what you're going through in your life, your purpose is to serve and worship that God, not yourself. We had to uh, sort of talk this through with our daughter recently. She came home from school the other, uh, probably about two months ago now. And, uh, and she, she said, oh, some kids at school made fun of my clothes. And I said to myself, I don't have to please them. My main job is to please myself. And, and so, you know, my wife said, what is that again? You know, she goes, my main job is to please myself. My wife said, what was that again? You know, and, and she, she said, where did you hear that? And she said, well, the, uh, they have a guidance counselor in their school, and like once a month, the guidance counselor meets with the classes, and Basically, just does like, you know, self-esteem building kind of stuff. And this guidance counselor is called the feelings teacher. And the, yeah, don't get me started, okay? The, uh, yeah. 
I'm not going to get into my education theory here and stuff, but anyway, the, the feelings teacher was, you know, and it's good. I mean, I understand the motive. The motive is you want to build up kids' self-esteem and not make them feel like they have to just follow all the other kids around and do whatever they say. So I understand the motive, but, you know, the message is all wrong. Yeah, you don't have to please other kids. You have to please God. And so, so my wife said, said to my son, because we'd just been studying the catechism, she said, William, what is the chief end of man? And he goes, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. You know, and, my, and my daughter is like, oh, yeah. And they're like, ha, ha, ha. You know, it's sort of a <laughs> cheesy family theology moment. Um, but, but man, I, it's like, you don't need the feelings teacher to tell you that. That's right here in our hearts. Our instinct is to please ourselves. And the great irony is that the more I try to please myself, the less it works. But the more I get my eyes off myself and say, God, my life is for you. I am here to serve and worship you. You'd be amazed at how happy you become. That when you get your eyes off onto God, it, it, yourself, it takes care of itself. You don't have to worry about that. That is why we're here on terra firma. That is why you exist. That is why God has you alive at this very moment, is to worship and serve Him. That's why we exist. And just like the seraphim, we're here to praise Him. But of course we don't. Uh, we fail. I fail repeatedly, daily it seems. And so I can identify with Isaiah in verse 5. Having seen this God, having been suddenly aware of this King, He says in verse 5, Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined. I'm dead meat. I'm toast. I'm a dead man. It's over. For I am a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. And here's the second aspect of holiness. Remember I said there's two sides of the holiness coin? To say that God is holy, first of all, means that He's other, that He is God, God alone. There's not a bunch of gods. There's not a hierarchy of gods. There's just God and everything else. The other thing that God's holiness means is His moral purity. His absolute sinlessness. His total cleanness and, and holiness is purity in that sense, in a moral, ethical sense. And the two, obviously, are related. All holiness comes from Him. All purity comes from Him. And, and so they're connected to each other. That's the second aspect. And so when Isaiah comes in the presence of this king... In the, of this morally pure God, he becomes immediately and excruciatingly aware of his own uncleanness. That the holy purity of God makes it very obvious to Isaiah that he is unclean. Like Calvin says in the beginning of his Institutes, if you really want to understand man, you have to understand God. And then when you start to understand man, you'll understand God. It goes both ways. The more you understand God, the more you understand man. The more you really understand what man is, the more you understand what God is. And, and so, as Isaiah sees who God is, he suddenly becomes aware of who he is. That he is a sinful man. It's kind of like, uh, I was trying to think of an analogy. It's like this time, uh, a college buddy of mine several years ago went backpacking up in the White Mountains in New Hampshire. And we did a three-day backpack. And, you know, if you've ever been backpacking... By the end of it, a couple of days out in the woods, I mean, you're, you just reek. You smell. You're awful. You know, you're backpacking every day. You're sweating, and the sweat is drying on you. And, you know, you're hiking. You're spitting, and it's laying on your arm. And you're like, Argh. you know. And, and, and you inevitably, you bump up against trees and, and rocks, and you cut yourself, and you have blood that gets caked on you and dirt. And, you know, you, you get some ashes on your hand. You, you know, it stays on your face for two days. You just look horrible. And you sleep in the same sleeping bag every night. And you got the picture. Okay, so. But the thing is, you don't notice it because you're out in the woods, and your buddy smells the same. 
And so when you get in the tent at night, it's like, hey, you're okay, I'm okay. You know? <laughs> we're fine, we're fine. Well, anyway, the, the, the backpacking trip ends, and then we get in the car, and, and we're suddenly like, oh, let's get pizza. We've been eating dehydrated backpacking food for three days. You suddenly want some hot, real food instead of the dehydrated stuff. So we pull into this pizza hut, and, and we go in, and it was so weird. I just remember this. You walk in the pizza hut, and you suddenly become aware of how foul you are, you know? And you're standing there talking to a person, placing your order, a person who has, you know, showered this morning and used deodorant and brushed their teeth, and, and there's this person who's clean in front of you, and suddenly you're like, you know, the smell comes out of nowhere, and you realize how, how horrible you smell and look. And you're like, oh, I need to get out of here and go take a shower or something. And I think that's how it, that's kind of an image. Just take that image and then multiply it times a, you know, like my kids say, a Google times a Google. Put, uh, multiply it to the highest degree, and that's God in us. We come into the presence of God, and up to that moment, it's, oh, I'm okay, you're okay. I'm a good person, you're a good person. I'm a good Baptist, I'm a good Catholic, I'm a good Lutheran. Yeah, I'm nice, I'm decent, whatever. And then we come into the presence of God in His total moral purity, and we just say, oh, I am unclean. His, his purity just makes it so obvious that, that we are a sinful and broken people. And whenever God shows up, whenever God truly reveals Himself, one of the results, not the only result, but one of the results is that we become painfully aware that we are sinful people, that He is a king whom we have not served, that He is the potter and we are the clay that has rebelled, that He is the God whom we have not worshipped. We become aware of that. Uh, look at the history of revivals, even here in our own country. Read about the great revivals that have taken place. One aspect of a true revival is always repentance. People repent. Think about Jonathan Edwards in the 18th century in Connecticut when revival hit his little church. I mean, people were falling out of their pews, literally. They were sobbing. They were shaking uncontrollably. And it's not because it was some you know, weird charismatic meeting kind of thing. It's not what was going on in those days. It's just that people were so overwhelmed with the sense of guilt in the presence of Holy God that God let enough of Himself shine out that people were like, oh! And they became immediately aware of their uncleanness and sinfulness. People, the fact that our country, the people in our country today deny that we're sinful. I mean, I'm making a generalization, but I think by and large, people today would not say, oh, I'm a sinner. They may say, oh, I'm imperfect. I mean, no one's perfect, but I'm a good person. I try my best. And, and the fact that that is kind of the prevalent mindset of our culture today simply proves that our society has no idea who God is. It proves it. Because if you know who God really is, you don't go around saying, oh, I'm fine, I'm swell, I'm okay, I'm doing just good. You don't say that. You cannot say that in the presence of this God. And the fact that, that America think, you know, we think we're spiritual, we think we're spiritually minded, it's hogwash. There is no spirituality without repentance before God. Any spirituality without repentance is totally phony. We have to come to say, I am a, a sinful man, God. I have not walked in your ways. I am unclean. And as Isaiah says, I'm ruined. That's it. It's done. So in verse 6, then one of the seraphs flew to me. Of course he's going to fly to him. He's going to pull out a sword and smite him. Because someone that unclean cannot be in the presence of holy God. That's what you'd expect. But then comes this amazing, unexpected twist in verse 6. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. And with it he touched my mouth and said, 
See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Like, what? <laughs> that is so amazing. What you expect to happen at that point is for the seraph to come and just, you know, just knock Isaiah right out of there. Or, or maybe God just to hit a little button on his throne, you know, like cartoons. Hits a button and the trap door opens. And Isaiah's like, ah, and he falls into hell or something. I mean, that's, that's what should happen. That, that's the logical thing. But instead, it's like, what? The seraph comes and he says, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And instead of being destroyed and ruined, as Isaiah expected and as he should have been, he's suddenly forgiven. He's clean. He's purified. Notice two things about this salvation that comes to Isaiah. We talked about two aspects of holiness. I just want to very quickly talk about two aspects of of this salvation. The first thing I notice is that the salvation comes from God. It comes from God. God brings the salvation to Isaiah. Isaiah doesn't get the salvation for himself. In other words, the way we get right with God is not by, well, I'm going to do some penance, and I'm going to make some new resolutions, and I'm going to go to church, and I'm going to get serious again. You don't get right by God by just hiking up your bootstraps and setting your jaw and trying harder. Getting right with God is not a New Year's resolution. I mean, we're ruined. That's who we are. The only thing you and I bring to salvation is the problem. Everything else comes from God. It's God who must come to us. There's no amount of good deeds, do-gooderism, religiosity that I can stack up like a bunch of boxes and then climb up on top of those boxes and then jump up and grab hold of heaven and you know, do a pull-up and get in. You can't sort of climb, build your way up to heaven. No, the only way we can be right with God is if God reaches down and lifts us up. That's the only way. Salvation must come from the Lord. God saves. We do not save ourselves. And then notice the second thing. And this is, this is the most amazing thing of all. This is the, the totally mind-blowing thing. Notice how God saves. It is through a sacrifice. Check out verse 6. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. From the altar. It's from the altar of sacrifice. Now, just to refresh here, you know how worship was done in those days. They'd, uh, they'd have an altar there, and they'd bring in like a goat or a lamb or something, and then the person who came to have their sins forgiven before God, they would lay their hands on the animal, Right? And they would confess their sins over the animal. And so this, the religious symbolism was that the person's sins were being transferred to the animal. And then the animal would be taken, slaughtered, and put on the altar and burned. And so the idea was that what should have happened to the sinner has been happened by this animal substitute. Now, of course, we know that an animal can't take away a human's sins. It's just sort of religious symbolism and ritual. And so in order to truly take away sins, God had to provide a better sacrifice, one that would truly work. And so what was it that God sacrificed? Who went on that altar? Who was it who was ruined in the place of Isaiah? What, who is it that, that is sacrificed for our sins? And the amazing answer we find in Isaiah is that it's God Himself who goes on the altar. That the Creator, holy, holy, holy God, who's way up there, came way down here and sacrificed Himself for my sins. What are you talking about? That just makes no sense to me. It's called grace. 
that God took on human flesh in the person of Jesus Christ and He died on that cross, God Himself sacrificed Himself for me so that I could be cleansed. And I'll tell you what, an animal may not take away my sins, but God can. And God's sacrifice did it. We can't save ourselves. Only God can do it. And so Jesus comes to us now. He doesn't have a burning coal in His hand, but He comes and He's got a nail print right in His hand. And He has blood on His hand. And He says, let me touch your lips. Let me touch your heart. You can't make yourself right. Just let me touch you and you will be clean. It is not the coal from the altar. It is the pierced hand of Christ that comes to cleanse us from our sins. God meets with us to save us from Himself. Look at Isaiah 57. One quick verse, then I'm done. Isaiah 57, verse 15, summarizes what I'm trying to say here. Isaiah 57, 15. Now, listen for Isaiah 6 here. It says, For this is what the high and lofty one says, who lives forever, whose name is holy. There's Isaiah 6. I live in a high and holy place, but also with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. That is just, that is one of the best verses in the Bible that the same holy God who would just crush me with His glory is the same God who became a human being to walk with me and save me and love me. That He dwells with the lowly and contrite. I just want to challenge you and say, you know, I don't know if you've ever seen God. Probably most of us here haven't in that kind of sense. But the fact is, someday we all will. We all will. Whether in this life with some rare vision, or someday we will stand before Him in the life to come. And on that day, I just want to say, are you ready? Are you ready? What are you going to say when you stand before that God? Like when you stand before, when He stood before the President. What are you going to say when you suddenly stand before Holy, Holy, Holy God? Are you going to try to justify yourself and say, well, I, I tried to be a good person and I'm, I'm decent God? Because you know, you're just going to throw that aside. That's not going to save you. You have to come to Christ now and say, Jesus, I am unclean. I do deserve to be ruined, but I just cry out to You. And my concern is that, that everybody here in this room knows for certain that were you to die in the next week and to have to stand before that God, you would be ready. That's my concern. And, and I want everybody here to know for certain that they have Christ. You go, well, I'm not really sure if I have Christ. Not good enough. Be sure. Wrestle. Pray. Go home tonight. Don't watch TV. Go up to your bedroom. Get on your knees and say, God, I don't fully understand this, but I know that I need You, Jesus. And so come into my life and save me. And just cry out to God in your own words. And don't stop until you know for certain that He is your God. Anything less than that is utter foolishness. Because what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? And the confidence that you can have is that the God you are praying to is the God who says, I live in a high and holy place, but also with Him who is contrite and lowly in spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite.
I'd invite you to take your hymnals out of the pew rack in front of you. Hymn number 583. You want to worship the Lord as we prepare to go to his table. Number 583. You are my strength when I Yeah. 